So we're going to be talking today about um, community. And uh, around E3, years and years and years ago, we invented a word, because that's what we do here, uh, called connexity. And connexity is just an E3 word that symbolizes connecting people with biblical community. So we use those words synonymously. If we say community, we mean connexity. If we say connexity, we mean community. Um, And as I said this week or this series, we're interacting with the story of David and Goliath. And we're just cycling through it every week. David and Goliath, David and Goliath. Now here's the deal. Um, There's not a whole lot of overt community stuff in David and Goliath. Like David doesn't pause in the middle of his slinging and be like, and let me tell you five principles for running a good growth group. Uh, The story doesn't work that way. So um, there is a backdrop, however, of community that I just want to kind of uh, hint at because community is still what we're calling a a giant slayer. And if you guys remembered um, last week, we talked about how the principle of this series is that we all have giants in our lives. We have things in our lives that we wish weren't there. And the basic definition of a giant, if you guys remember, are something that is threatening, it causes fear, and it inhibits your, your progress or your growth. And so if you just look at that, we all have giants. And luckily, life with God and, and Christianity, I believe, actually equips, if you do it right, it equips you to slay the giants in your life. And so we talked about how this series is about looking at the giant killers that the church gives us, and not just E3 church, but big church. And so uh, in answering to the question of how do I respond when the giants show up, we respond with worship, with discipleship, with community, with service, and with invitation or evangelism. So this week is about community. As I said, when you read the David and Goliath story, and hopefully you're interacting with that in your growth groups, again, you're not gonna see overt community stuff in there, but it's laced through. Uh, Now, on the the downside, David shows up at the army with the the food that he's bringing to his brothers. And his brothers are actually kind of the worst small group you've ever imagined because they're just, he shows up and he's like, here's some food. Who's that giant? I think I'd like to try and kill him. His brothers are like super bummer, depressing guys. They're like, what are you doing? You have no business being here. Get out of here. Okay, you know, like that's not part of a community that you really want to be a part of. And then David interacts with Saul and Saul's a little bit more open to the idea, equips him with his armor and everything. So there's this weird kind of there, not there image of community. Uh, One thing that's important to remember is that there, I don't know if if I can describe this adequately in the brief time that we have, but the fact that there is a people of God at all indicates that community is somehow important to God. Like David goes to an army that is the people of God because God's story is one that he calls a people. He doesn't just call one person, uh, Abram, to kind of initiate the rescue process. God calls an entire people. So the fact that there's, there is a group of people who are fighting the Philistines actually tells you that community is a big deal to God. So I want to interact with the concept of, of community, basically it's centered around two thoughts. And the first thought is this, that we're made for this. We're made for community. There's a something that is visceral and basic about our hunger and our desire for community. 
I don't think most of us like to be, we might be okay with being alone, but nobody likes to be lonely. And there is something that is hardwired inside us to connect with other human beings. And I think I can, I can describe this to you in a few brief steps. Um, we're made in God's image. We believe at E3, we are made in the image of God. And this is not just fancy church talk. We actually believe this to be true. And so we take this from Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. God is at the apex of creation. And he turns around and he says, look, let us make human beings in our what? Image. And then it goes on and it says, so he did just that. Man and woman, he created them in his image. So that means a few different things. One thing that it means uh, that I believe is that whenever I'm acting in consistency with God's character, I'm acting as his image bearer. So when I read the Bible, I see a God who is passionate about healing the world and healing broken people and being compassionate and, and welcoming the outsider. And he's passionate for justice and he's passionate that, that everybody is treated equally. That is God's image. And whenever I embody that, or whenever I'm about that work in the world, I am embodying God's image, okay? But uh, also, whenever I am engaging in community in a meaningful level, I'm also engaging and connecting with God's image. Because if you read the Bible, what you'll find is that community is not just kind of something that God says, hey, this is a good idea to do. Community is actually a part of God's identity. And so to say that we're made for community is actually to pronounce a very, very basic truth about our faith. We're made for community because we're made in God's image and God is community. Now, if you read the Bible and, and this week in your growth groups, you're gonna be interacting with a text uh, in, the, in the second chapter of Acts about the early church. They took community very, very seriously. They, they led life uh, together. They lived life together. And also in the New Testament, you see the Apostle Paul who wrote a huge chunk of the New Testament. And he makes these statements about community. He makes one in 1 Corinthians. It looks like this. He said, all of you together are Christ's what? Body. And each of you is a part of it. Okay. And Paul seizes on this metaphor of the people of God as Christ's body. And he means it. Like just, like just in the same way that my body is like not all complete and then my hand is kind of over there attached. He's like, no, look, you are part of a whole. You might be one little like, you know, thumb or finger joint, but you cannot separate yourself from the whole. In Romans, he says this, just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. High School Musical would say we all belong together. It's really not that bad of a movie. Once my wife kind of just said, she's, look, she's Eric, it's the next generation's Greece. I was like, oh, okay, I can connect with that, all right. Um, 
So this all goes back, as I said, uh, we're actually touching some really, really deep stuff here, really, really deep stuff about our faith. And I, and, and I hope you got to kind of put on your theology hat for just a minute, but I, I promise we won't stay here for long. This is so important to Paul and it's so important to the first church because this is part of God's character. And in the first few hundred years of the church, the fathers and the mothers and the theologians of the early church began to put this thing together in what we would call the doctrine of the Trinity. So what this basically means, if you're new to the faith, if you've never really thought about this, what we believe as Christians is that our God is one, but he has three persons. And so what that means is that God knows what it means to be in community. And somehow, essentially, his essence is one of one God who exists in eternal, perpetual community with each other. So God knows how to do community. So when we are made in his image, it means we are made for community. This doesn't happen to us randomly. It happens to us because our father works this way. And this is where it gets kind of dicey because we would also say as, as, uh, as part of our doctrine that these three persons have sort of their own roles in the world and they have their own job descriptions, the father, the son, the spirit. They're all unique but they are also all inseparably connected with each other. The Greek word that they used is translated as interpenetrating. So they're never independent of each other. They are always together. And like I said, I think that God knows how to do community because I don't think God exists eternally. He's like, man, I really wish Jesus would stop talking. Or he was like, man, the Holy Spirit's telling that story for like the millionth time. God knows how to do community because it's part of his essence. Let me show you one more picture, just kind of as an FYI. This is another picture I stumbled across. Uh, This is a Celtic symbol. And uh, what the Celtic priests did a lot is they used this symbol to actually describe the Trinity, that it has three parts, and the three parts are kind of connected by these lines, but they're also separated by these lines. It's just a cool way that, that like throughout history, people have used images in culture to kind of tell truths about God. One other truth that I would like to kind of pass on to you, and this is really, really fascinating to me, is uh, get ready, hold on to your, hold on to your chairs, because I'm going to talk for just a minute about quantum physics. So there's a field of quantum physics called field theory. And what uh, physicists are discovering is that, that, uh, in life, we are not actually separate, only separate and distinct from each other. That actually between bodies, there are fields of energy that are existing between fields of body. So even though I am myself, I am Eric, I am separate, there's a field of energy between Robert and me and actually between everybody. And what a lot of theologians have started to say is they've looked at science and they've like, whoa, wait a minute. You know what that sounds like? That sounds like the trinity of an interpenetrating group of of three persons of God. And so what they're looking at and they're like, you know what? Maybe this three in one thing is not as wacky as, as what we first thought. Maybe actually all of reality is group of people who, who are connected and yet separate. That's fascinating to me. We are created 
for community because community is somehow a part of the essence and the way God has designed the world. I would say it this way. You can, no long, you can no more talk about an individualistic Lone Ranger Christian than you could go to a, a restaurant in the South and order a grit. <laughs> it doesn't happen. Human beings and Christians are made and essentially community in the same way that you like, I'd like a grit, please. <laughs> I don't even know if there, there is such a thing. They only come in groups of grits. And that's the way Christians are made to, that's why human beings are made to come, only in groups. Furthermore, uh, community is, is the laboratory for our faith. And some of you have heard me say this before. It's the proving ground for our faith. So I can go away and I can be my, my lone individual self and I can read my Bible and I can pray but if I go out and I treat other human beings like dirt, I would suggest to you that there's something wrong with my devotion. My laboratory is proving that my work isn't quite adequate. Now, on the positive side, one of the ways that I monitor my devotional life is if I'm doing well with people, if I'm compassionate, if I'm patient with other people, and those things always require, uh, most of the time, another person. I mean, yes, I can be compassionate with myself and that's good and that's, that's true, but community is the thing that tests and proves how we're doing with God. It's the laboratory. We need it. We can't do without it. So we are made for community. That's the first truth. And I hope you guys wrap your heads around that. But here's the second truth. We also all have a built-in resistance to community. You guys know what I'm talking about? You'd say, okay. I know that there's this thing that I need. I know that there's this thing that I want. It makes me feel good when I touch it. And yet at the same time, I also shy away from it. There are times when I send the call to voicemail because I don't want to engage, right? <clears throat> I think there's uh, mainly two really easy reasons why we are resistant to community. First one is cultural. Look, if, if you grow up in, in the United States of America, you, grew, you are growing up in a radically individualistic culture, especially if you're European. It's just the way we're wired. Historically, socially, that's our tendency. We look at life through the individual lenses. This really became apparent to me uh, for a, a while when I lived in Chicago. My wife and I were a part of a multicultural, multi-ethnic church. Radically different people from radically different backgrounds coming together to be an alternate kingdom in the city of Chicago to kind of look at what it would be like to worship together across ethnic and cultural boundaries. And as I was getting into the community, uh, I was meeting people, but I was trying to find ways to have my conversations go deeper. And, I, and I, I was very sensitive to the fact that when I would interact with people from different cultures, I wouldn't always know where to start. You know, I wouldn't always know where those entry points are. I can, I can talk to other musicians, but sometimes when there's a big cultural divide, I would just like, I don't know where to start. And, and I went to my pastor who was Korean American. And I said, how do I just get started with conversations that go beyond the surface, that go beyond the chin, the chin wave on Sunday morning or the, hey, how you doing? And he said, Eric, 
ask them about their family. And I said, what? And he said, Eric, you don't realize it. He said, he said uh, Caucasian, white culture is, is very individualistic focused. So uh, for, most, uh, for, for most people, if they came up to me and they wanted to know who I was, they would ask me, what, Eric, what do you do? What are your hobbies? The things that I do by myself. He said, other cultures, they have a much more communal view of life. So you ask them, tell me about your family. Because they... Because they they exist in relationship much more naturally than we do. So if you come from certain cultures, you have to understand that you are, that you are already predisposed and bent towards not necessarily wanting to engage in community the way other cultures do. And that, one, is okay, but two, you need to grow in because God's essence is community. Now, the second way is, is that we're resistant to it is, this, like, let's just be honest, it's personal. It's ironically individualistic. It's the thing that we own. <clears throat> Henry Nouwen says it, says it this way. He says, community is the place where the person you least want to live with lives. So like when we have the people that we're comfortable with, I don't even think we're aware that we have to work on community. It's those other people. Those people that we have to work hard, that's where community lives. And I think it boils down to something that I've been thinking about. And I actually did some reading this week uh, uh, in a book um, <clears throat> by a guy named John Ortberg. He wrote a book called Everybody's Normal Till You Get to Know Them, which is a great title. And this really just prompted a lot of my thinking this week. And he got to talking about this. That I think that one of the problems with community is that uh, we tend to think that we're okay and other people are okay. And so when we get into community with other people, when they're not okay, when they talk too much, when they cut us off, when they won't go as deep as we want to get, we're shocked. Oh, they're not okay. Or then we're not okay and we don't want to um, take off the mask. And I love the way John, uh, John says it. He says, you know what? We all need to come to terms with the fact that we all have this label that we need to engage with. Now, I haven't bought a car in a car dealership in a long time. Last car we bought was from an individual. But if you've ever been to a dealership and you walked around the car dealership, you see this sticker. As is. We all need to realize that we are as is people. And when you see a car that's as is, some of the as is stuff you see, scratch on the fender, you know, dent on one of the wheels, maybe a tear in the seat. Those are the as is things that you see. But there's also other as is stuff that you don't see until you get in the car and drive around a little bit, right? Sometimes you don't, under, you don't discover the as is stuff until you drive it for a month. And you're like, whoa, wait a minute. I didn't realize I had to deal with this. The car was as is. We are as is people. We have things about us that are very easy to see. You know, like, oh, you know, I don't know. I mean, if you were hanging around me a bit, you might, you might find out that I'm, I can be a little quiet or whatever. Those are the easy things about me. There are other things about me that you won't discover until you spend a month with me or two months. And those are the things that, that make community harder because they tend to be a little bit more serious. But I think we all need to come to terms with the fact that A, 
There's none of us in here that don't have an as-is sticker on. And so we need to get over the idea of being shocked. Oh my gosh, that person's not perfect. Guess what? Neither are you. And I think this thing, this, this uh, combines to make us sometimes resistant to community because we don't want to engage with the broken parts of people and we don't want to show them our broken parts, Right? But I want to just wrap up, spend a couple minutes on, on a story in the New Testament that is this crazy cool story of when people just lean into community on a really, really visceral level and they're not afraid of their as-is sticker and we see what happens. So if you have your Bible and you want to turn to Mark chapter 2, we're going to be uh, looking there and then there'll be scriptures on the side screens for you. You can follow along. I'm just going to read this little passage and then talk about it for a few minutes Chapter two, verse one, when Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room, even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd. So they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. So he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven or stand up, pick up your mat and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up. Do you think he jumped up? I, he probably jumped up. He grabbed his mat and he walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, We've never seen anything like this before. This is the word of God for the people of God. So there's, a f there's three elements in this story that I just want to sit with for a couple. And the first was the guy with the mat, the paralyzed guy. Now, it's, I imagine it's never easy to be, a, to be a paralytic in the world, but it's certainly not easy to be a paralytic in the first century. There are no wheelchairs. There are no prosthetics. There are no robotics. His universe was his mat. And he had to be taken everywhere. Everything he had existed in this, I don't know, three by three, four by four thing. And that was his as-is sticker. Can you imagine having an as-is sticker that is that devastating and that visible to every single person in the world around you? That it just shouts, Here's what's not right about me. Here's the way that I'm broken. And that was his entire world. And the question is, and where we find ourselves in the scripture, which I believe that we're called to do, is the question I would simply ask you. What is your version of the mat? Because we all have an as-is sticker. We all have a mat. What is not normal about you? 
What's the thing that you can't get over in and of yourself? Could be an addiction, could be anger, could be prejudice, could be fear, it could be something physical. What is the thing about you that makes you not normal? And, and understand that, that normal in a way is, it doesn't even exist as a category. There's no such thing as normal. We're all, all people of the mat, right? Not a one of us doesn't have something. And then the second question is, who knows that thing? Is there anybody in the world that knows that truth about you? Or have you been carrying that privately for 5, 10, 15, 20, 40, 50 years? But we're all, we're all that paralyzed guy. But as John Ortberg says, what this guy has is he has a killer small group. Jesus is, is home. He comes to Capernaum. And uh, I love this line of thinking. There are a lot of scholars who think that, that when it says that Jesus comes home to Capernaum, he literally comes home, that he has a house in Capernaum. So Jesus goes to his house and he's preaching. And this guy's small group, his four buddies are like, Jesus is here. He's been healing people. He's been restoring people. He's been doing amazing things. Let's take our friend, maybe his name was Matt. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> Let's take him to encounter Jesus. And so they pick him up and they take him to this place. And then they're like, we can't get in. We can't get in. And for most of us, I think we would be like, well, game over. I guess, I guess we'll go back. Let's take, let's take our buddy back. Maybe there'll be another day. But not these guys. Not these guys. They look in, a, in most first century houses, they have an exterior staircase and the roof doubled as a patio. And so they're like, one of them, who knows which one? He's like, I got an idea. And maybe he told them, maybe he didn't. Because I imagine if he told him, I would probably be the person that would be like, dude, that's an awful idea. But somebody said, let's take him up the stairs. And they get up the stairs. And I love this because I don't know if, if you guys remember a few weeks back, I, I was talking about how one of the things that I view my role in life, I feel like God has called me to do is say, look, Eric, all you have to do is bring people into proximity to Jesus. Let Jesus do the rest. I don't feel like I am allowed to prohibit anybody from coming to Jesus. I just don't feel like I'm allowed to. And so these guys are like, you know what? You know what we need to do? We need to get our buddy to Jesus. And so they go up and the only thing between them and Jesus is what? A roof. We got a, we got a solution for that. Now, um, as I was reading this week, I, 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 was, I was made to understand that, that this is not a roof like we would think of a roof. They don't have to cut through joists. They don't have to, they don't have to dig up shingles and, and, and cut a hole in plywood. The, the roofs in the first century were actually pretty thin, thin little things, just thatch maybe. And so they scoop it. And I imagine, I mean, maybe there was that moment where if it was Jesus's house, they were like, do you think he's gonna be mad? And they're probably like, no, he'll forgive us. It'll be fine. 
And so Jesus is preaching. And, and was there this moment where he's like preaching? He's in the middle of a message in some dust. Like, <laughs> and he like looks up. And he sees these guys digging a hole and lowering their buddy through. And what do you think he does? He's not like, get out of here till my message is done. It's a killer ending. He's like, your faith has made you well. And, and you notice what he says? Not just the faith of the guy on the mat, the faith of all of them. It takes a community to get this thing done. We're all not only just people of the mat, we're also the guys who carry mats. None of us fall into just one category or the other. In some ways, I'm a mat guy. In a lot of other ways, I'm a, I'm a mat carrier. And when I encounter a barrier between one of my friends and Jesus, what this story reminds me of is a lot of those barriers aren't nearly as big as I think they are. Because again, we run up and we're like, oh, there's this barrier between our buddy and Jesus. Well, sorry, it's not gonna happen today. Let's go home. And what John Orberg says, and I love this, he says, you know what? You wanna get people to Jesus, you know what it takes? Pay attention and take action. Just notice what's going on in people's lives and then do something about it. And now, that's really convicting to me because I think of how busy I can get. And people just make a comment about something that's going on in their lives and, and rather than going, whoa, wait, 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 say that again. Tell me what's going on in your life. I just let the comment go right past. So if you're a mat carrier, like how well are you listening to your friends? Are you taking notice of when, of when they just describe something that's going on in their lives that's a barrier to their growth and you go, wait, 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 say that again. Let me understand. Let me understand your situation. Tell me that one more time. And then when you hear it, going like, I could do something about that. It's not often that big of a deal. I remember one time, um, um, that same church that we were a part of, uh, the pastor grew, we grew to be buddies, we grew to be friends. And uh, I don't know if you guys know this about me, but in I think it was 2004, my father had a major stroke. And uh, they were in Virginia, we were in Chicago. I was working in an office and all of a sudden my phone starts going off. You know, cell phone starts just ringing and ringing and ringing. And I was working, I couldn't really answer the phone, I just kept sending it to voicemail. Finally, my sister texts me, she's like, something's happened to dad, you need to call me. So I called him, you know, like it's, it's, you know, like it's a stroke, we think. And then, you know, if you guys have ever been in a situation like this, then it's like, it's, the news just keeps getting worse, okay? It, it's worse, it's bad. So I left and I called, we called, uh, we called our friends in the church. I called my, my pastor, I said, look, this is going on. Um, my dad's just had a stroke, I, we've come home, we don't really know what's going on, but um, they're telling us we're trying to figure out a way to, to get to Virginia. We had no money. We, were, we weren't even living paycheck to paycheck because the paychecks were running out before the next paycheck came. That was our reality. We were doing the best we could. Told our community what was going on. And then phone rang again. It was my pastor and he said, just want to let you know that you just go to the airport. We're going to pay your flight. You just go. Wasn't a big deal. They had some resources. We didn't have any. It was just one flight 
to D.C. He said, we'll get you to D.C., just rent a car. We're going to take care of it for you. All he did was pay attention and take one little step. And it blessed me in my hour of need. Some of you guys who are mat carriers, like, just are you too busy sometimes? Do you need to slow down? And do you need to be a little bit less focused on yourself and, and a little bit more focused on the people around you? I think that community is a pretty effective giant killer. And I think it actually kills many giants when you do it right. I think one giant that it kills is loneliness. People are so alone. You think you're isolated. And you're isolated sometimes because you just haven't been able to start or maybe you're wearing that mask because you're afraid of, of your as-is sticker. And you just need to realize, look, we, we all got it. And you just need to say, I'm gonna just jump in. It also kills the giant, I believe, of pride. Because we like to think that uh, sometimes that just because we don't have the same as is sticker as other people, that it makes us better. And we just need to understand that we're all in this thing together. We are the people of the mat. Also kills the giant of fear. What will happen when I take off my mask? What, if, what will happen if the people in my growth group understand that thing about me? Well, it's been my experience that most people, when you take off the mask and you say, I got this thing, what you typically find in a group of, is a group of people who are smiling with tears in their eyes going like, that's my thing too. And you understand, you find out that you're not that alone in the world and you don't need to be afraid. And I think the last thing that the giant, that the, this stone can kill is the giant of apathy. When you realize that all you need to do to carry somebody's mat is to pay attention to what they're saying and choose to take one little action. So each week, if you were here last week, we're inviting people to kind of come up at the end of a gathering and just kind of make a public statement of, of a mission of saying like, look, I've got a giant in my life and maybe my giant is one of those things that we just talked about. So the band's gonna play and you're invited just to come up and just take a stone just before this community. Maybe, you'd, maybe you're not where you wanna speak that reality yet, but you can walk up, you can walk 10 feet, you can walk 20 feet and go like, well, I'm gonna take a stone and I'm gonna let that be the first step of my journey. Or maybe your giant in here is something else today. And you just need to come up and say, I've got something else going on in my life that I need God's help with. You're invited to do that too. The band's gonna play. Um, I've already taken my stone for the day. Keep a hold of it, collect it, or collect them. You can write on them at home, draw on them at home. We're gonna be doing something at the end of the series with them, but just respond to God in this moment as the band plays. Amen. Amen.